Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. And we begin with the news that is perhaps most prominent around Westminster at the moment, the growing pressure on the housing secretary to resign. Downing Street is backing Robert Jenrick amid claims he tried to save a Tory donor millions of pounds in taxes. Jenrick is accused of intervening in a huge planning project run by media mogul Richard Desmond. He approved an East London development before overturning his own decision. Labour MP and Shadow Community Secretary Steve Reid initially made the complaint. The documents show that Mr Jenrick rushed the decision through on the 14th of January specifically so he could help Mr Desmond avoid 30 to 50 million pounds in a community levy that would have been spent on things like schools, youth clubs and clinics. Well, joining us now, very pleased to say, is Alexander Stafford, Conservative MP for Rother Valley. Alex, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Um, well, let's start with that. I mean, it's clearly not a great look. And as, in fact, Robert Jenrick admitted when, uh, when I think he re- re- resiled back from his initial decision on the planning issue. But it seems to be hanging around the Conservative Party and the government. Is this a moment, perhaps, where he should go for the good of the government? Well, I think uh, Robert yesterday was very open and honest, and the amount of documents has frankly been unprecedented release, which really shows that, as Conservatives, we're very open uh, to, to scrutiny, and I think that's a good thing. So I think I think Robert gave a good account of himself and the actions uh, yesterday in the chamber, and you know, fundamentally, we want to get the housing sector moving in this country. We need more homes. There's, we have not enough homes. We need to get houses building, and that is a good thing, and that is a positive message from the government. Well, should this donation have been accepted in the first place? Labour calling it a cash-for-favours scandal. Uh, I, I said, I don't recognise that. And I, don't, and I think Robert gave a very good account himself uh, yesterday about that. And fundamentally, if you look at the Conservative housing record, we build far more homes uh, than Labour. If you look at Labour's administration in Wales, they've built only about 60 homes in the past year, council homes. It's just shocking. What we need to do is get the housing sector moving, and that we need to build our way out of this coronavirus disaster. And it is an economic disaster. I can do that by building more homes, and that's a good thing. 
Yeah, but you, you, you say that he gave a good account of himself, but the fact is, if you only have to look in the papers this morning to see how badly this is playing for a government that desperately needs public opinion with it as we come out of the uh, the virus issue, uh, isn't this a moment, as I, as I said at the beginning, where he should go? I mean, would you say that he shouldn't resign? I, I think that he had a very good account of himself uh, yesterday in the chamber and are quite open and honest about, uh, about things and the mentality behind it. And I think that, that's uh, something to be applauded. So I think he's done an amazing job trying to get rid of homelessness in this country. And homelessness has been a scourge in our society. And he's managed to sort of almost bring it down hugely during the coronavirus. And that's something to be applauded for. He's done great work over combating homelessness. Well, I mean, one accusation that some people are making is that this reinforces the idea after the Dominic coming scandal that there's one rule for the elite and another for the masses you can just give a bit of money to the government and then your project gets approved uh well i don't recognize it at all I, I i don't think uh that that is the case in the slightest in terms of the way it was played, I mean, we, we've seen some of the pictures of, of going to these fundraisers. I mean, it's an awkward moment for, for any party, I guess, when fundraisers and politicians look that close together and then do well out of it. Is it perhaps time to change the rules around those kind of things? Well, I think, as Robert said, uh, when we went to fundraising, there's fundraisers for all sort of political parties and all sorts of causes across the world and everything. He went to this dinner, and he just, and when he arrived, he happened to find him sitting next to uh, the gentleman mentioned. He's in no choice of who where he'll sitting or no influence over where he's sitting. And I think it's very dangerous to start drawing a line over fundraisers because, you know, what's stopping you giving money to, you know, homelessness or what's stopping a fundraiser for other worthy causes? So I think it's a very dangerous line to talk about regulating fundraisers like this because uh, fundamentally we want more people to get involved in civil society and support every aspect that it is, whether it's charity, whether it's governance. I think actually fundraisers as a whole for everything is a good thing. OK, let's move things on to the virus efforts. I mean, we're seeing reports that schools will reopen in September, but without social distancing. Does that not put a lot of families in danger if you, say, have bubbles or some other format in the schools? That's still a lot of families that are coming into contact with each other. Hmm. And I went down to uh, Woodset Primary School in my constituency in Roller Valley only a couple of weeks ago to see firsthand how they are dealing with getting children back to school. And they're doing an amazing job. But what they showed me was quite clear was that they, under the current rules and regulations, they can't get all the children back. They just physically don't have the space and they physically don't have the teachers. And that is a concern. To me, it is vitally important that we get our children back to school, especially in seats like mine in Rother Valley, where we have high levels of deprivation. The worst thing is to have the children not being in school. We need our children educated. We need to give them a better chance in life. Because at the moment, the private schools are running on Zoom. People with money are sending their children to uh, private tutors online. But people who can't afford that are being discriminated against. That is discrimination. And we want our children to go back to school. We want them to best alive. We want them to, to, to make themselves successful. And that is a great thing. And that is something we need to balance out with healthcare, but it's important we get our children back to school. So that's going to involve more money uh, from a government that's already, of course, uh, spending an awful lot of money. Is it money that should be definitely directed towards uh, areas like your own, perhaps areas where there is uh, poverty, where, pe where people are more deprived, and they should definitely earmark education funds specifically for those areas? I would completely agree with more money coming to Rother Valley. Yes, yes, please. So uh, I would encourage the government to spend more money in Rother Valley than anywhere else in the country. So, yes. Have, have you told the Chancellor that? 
I have met with him on numerous cases. I met with him two weeks ago, in fact, and I literally talked about this leveling up for places just like Rother Valley, and I said, we need to make sure that money keeps coming in, because as I'm sure you know, after the election in December, everything was about talking about us northern seats, getting more money in the areas, then coronavirus hit, and I'm passionate about making sure we can make sure that money, which has been promised to us, gets into the right hands, the right people, and helps develop our areas. And what about what we uh, are seeing from you and many others uh, writing to the Chancellor about a UK-wide hydrogen strategy? Uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're calling for exactly there. Yes, well, I think hydrogen is really a, a revolution when it comes to both technology, but also in a bolster for UK PLC. I mean, this is the opportunity, hydrogen technology, to create tens of thousands of clean, green jobs across the country. And post-COVID, we need all the help we can get to really unlock our economy. And by unlocking the hydrogen part of the economy, we can really bolster the economic recovery. And one of the big advantages that hydrogen has is it's still not completely developed across the world. So we have a sort of first-mover advantage, whereas battery technology, the Chinese got a huge advantage and Germans. Hydrogen technology is still in its infancy. So if we get on the front foot on that, we can really, we can really uh, push this forward and really export this to the world and make huge amounts of money for the, for the country. Well, just explain how that would work, because I mean, a lot of people might not be wholly aware of what part hydrogen plays, how, what part it could play. Just give us a bit more detail on that. Yes, so this is all of the premise that we want to get to a, a net zero, a net carbon zero uh, emissions. And one aspect of that is to decarbonise so, uh, our transport fleet, basically. Also cars, aircraft, planes, boats and things like that. Now, obviously, most people have heard of battery technology, making huge inroads into that. But the powertrain of a battery car is not nearly as powerful as a conventional uh, petrol or diesel engine, which means for passenger vehicles, you can run them quite happily on batteries. But for those heavy vehicles, heavy-duty trucks, you know, dustbin lorries, those things, aeroplanes, boats, there just isn't enough power in a battery to run them. So we need to look at an alternative solution to actually get these uh, vehicles decarbonised or uh, carbon neutral. Now, hydrogen offers that solution because those sort of engines have the same power as a petrol or diesel engine. And if that hydrogen is produced by using renewable energy in the first place, and um, we have huge renewable country, then that could be a green, a carbon zero uh, way of getting these heavy vehicles, potentially planes, potentially boats, but definitely heavy duty vehicles, carbon neutral because the energy density of a hydrogen cell is far greater than the traditional electric battery. The question that is raised then is why this hasn't been done already? Why hasn't the UK or indeed any other country raced ahead and embraced hydrogen as a technology? Well, I think in some ways because electric batteries are almost simpler and sort of sexier to, to understand and there's been a huge push from the uh, passenger, uh, passenger manufacturers to get uh, electrification because it's a relatively straightforward technology to people's minds just like your mobile phone you stick your your, your charger at night for your mobile phone get a charge you take it out and you use your mobile phone same with an electric car but when we're talking about hydrogen we're talking about a slightly more complex way of dealing with this of this, this, this gas and the fact you have to produce it from renewables so it's not as sort of simple to think about although technology is straightforward and also people are concentrating on those sort of quick wins so it's easy to talk to the public about uh, going battery electric when it comes to passenger vehicles but when we're talking about fleets when we're talking about heavy duty vehicles that conversation really hasn't been properly had and fully had so i think this is a great opportunity to actually have that conversation but also drive huge amounts of jobs and growth uh, into the country 
I think I've seen one estimate that the global hydrogen economy is estimated to be worth $2.5 trillion by 2050 and support 30 million jobs. So there's potentially 30 million jobs out there and $2.5 trillion. And I want the UK to have a huge slice of that pie. And if we move quickly, we can get the biggest slice of the pie. And that will benefit areas like mine, which need more jobs and more growth. Alex, very briefly, isn't it explosive, though? It's quite a dangerous uh, gas, isn't it, hydrogen? Like all technology, we have to have to be careful. But and the same thing, petrol, if you like, is also you know flammable. So if it's done correctly, it is not dangerous. So that is no need to worry about that. Technology has moved on greatly since uh, I'm sure instance that you and I are thinking of. But no, it's not dangerous. It's done in a safe and secure way. It's perfectly safe. As safe as sort of petrol diesel in your car. Good song, the Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. Who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Roger, where do we start today? Well, antibody tests. Remember them. Now, there's mounting pressure on the virus front as health experts are warning that COVID-19 antibody tests still need better assessment before the UK government rolls them out. Now, writing in the British Medical Journal, 14 professors and scientists say the tests aren't accurate enough to reliably show whether people have actually been exposed to the virus, and they can't tell whether they're immune, therefore. The NHS was aiming to process thousands of samples of this kind a day, with turnover within 24 hours. So not good news if you want to know if you're immune. Uh, better news for those people who assume they already are and go out and all the rest of it. Um, maybe I'm being slightly unfair there. But the government making it easier for pubs and restaurants to serve customers outside. Latest bid to encourage spending as Boris Johnson relaxes the nation's lockdown. So later today, we're going to get licensing process simplified. It means pubs and restaurants can use car parks and terraces as dining and drinking areas. They're also going to be able to sell alcohol for consumption off their premises. Have a listen. I think it's only right that we look at all easements to help restaurants, pubs, where we can, how we can create more pavement, more spaces for people to enjoy themselves and to dine confidently whilst remaining alert and controlling the virus. That was the Tory MP Nadim Zahawi there. So there you have it, Roger. Dinner in a car park. How does that sound? Mm, perfect. Well, there are car parks and car parks, of course. Meanwhile, travel corridors. Now, you remember all about quarantine, which many people probably are still enduring right now. Well, lots of today's papers carry stories about so-called travel corridors. The idea there'll be certain countries Brits are allowed to take to go to, to in travel this summer without incurring quarantine. The Telegraph says locations will be announced in a three-part plan, starting with nearby nations like France, Spain and Italy, then expanding to other European countries and some more distant islands. Finally, places like Vietnam and Singapore in the late summer. The announcement expected 
expected to be made on Monday uh, when the rule is set to be reviewed. So there we go. Once all the sun ends here, which it will do any minute knowing Britain, we can get out of here and go and find it somewhere else as usual. And then finally, there's a great bit of analysis on the Bloomberg website, which lays out the extent of Britain's racial divide in six charts. It pulls together some difficult home truths. It includes the fact that COVID-19 is more likely to kill people from ethnic minority backgrounds. Black and Asian households are more likely to have persistently low incomes. Earnings for black workers in the UK consistently lower. Almost 60% of the 350 biggest companies in Britain have no people of colour on their boards. And black people are more likely to live in social housing and less likely to own their own homes. All of that illustrated in these nice charts that bring the data together. And as we know, Roger, the data never lies. No, the data's important. And data is what, of course, we do get from our opinion pollsters, people who go out and find out what the British public are thinking. And that's extremely crucial right now because the government is trying to keep the people on board with the way it's moving in terms of dealing with the virus. Is it leading or is it following? Interesting questions. To get an idea of where the public is standing, which Joan joins now, I'm very pleased to say, by Joe Twyman, who's director of Delta Poll. Joe, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. First of all, let, let's talk about the, the basic politics of it all. The last few weeks have seen a bit of a closing of the gap between Tories and Labour. Is that trend continuing? Uh, that's right. It's been, in fact, it's been a roller coaster ride for the uh, for many of the stats since the since the beginning of March and the emergence of the uh, emergence of the lockdown. We have seen a closing of the uh, closing of the gap, but over the last couple of weeks, that gap seems to have stabilised between sort of six and eight points with the Conservatives over uh, uh, over Labour, depending on the uh, depending on the precise time. Uh, now that may sound good for the Conservatives, given the uh, given the difficulties they've had. Uh, um, with some aspects of the of the COVID pandemic, but at the same time they were 19 points ahead at, uh, at one stage towards the end of uh, towards the end of April, and that's moved from uh, what pollsters like me call rallying around the flag and people uh, uh, and people really feeling positively about the government what the government was doing has now fallen away and we've seen a return to if you like much more normal in inverted commas results people are more likely to uh, respond in a party political way to the questions than they would have been during the height of the crisis in other words it means that if they like the conservatives generally they're likely to say they're doing well on uh, on the covid pandemic and if they prefer labor or the lib dems or another party they're likely say they think the Conservatives are doing badly on the pandemic, whereas previously they were willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. How much of it is to do with the government response to the pandemic and how much of it is to do with other issues? I'm thinking particularly about Keir Starmer, who uh, more and more people are learning to recognise uh, and people are starting to form their opinions on him. Is that having any sort of impact on these numbers? Uh, yes, absolutely. Keir Starmer's, uh, Keir Starmer's emergence as a leader, which of course came at the height of the uh, at the height of the pandemic, has had a positive impact on Labour's uh, on Labour's numbers. But at the same time, you would have expected all other things remaining equal. You would have expected Labour's numbers to improve, as I say, from that from that very large Tory lead at the height of the crisis. Anyway, but there's no doubt that uh, that the gap has closed while uh, Keir Starmer has been in charge. But also Keir Starmer's own personal ratings have done very well. And the more 
people know about him, the fewer people say they don't know, the greater his uh, his score turns out to uh, turns out to be. And he's uh, he's doing very well with around about a half of people saying that he's doing well compared to only around a quarter who say he's doing badly. And that means that his net performance is much better than Boris Johnson, who has similar levels, usually slightly higher. Uh, for people who think he's doing well. But he has a lot more people than Keir Starmer who say he's doing badly. But we are in a, a, a rather unusual situation at the moment in that both party leaders are in positive territory, and not just positive territory, but positive territory by quite a distance in terms of their net approval ratings. And that's very, very unusual because under normal circumstances, any politician is happy to scrape into, into positive territory at all. Okay, moving away from the direct politics to the indirect in a way, what about the ways in which people feel about what's been going on in terms of the easing of the lockdown, the rules that we now have that seem to be a lot more complicated than they were before? We've seen pictures, of course, in the papers full of photos of people flocking to the beach, not a lot of social distancing going on. Uh, Are you getting a sense from what you're polling that people are in sympathy with the way things are going? They're happy still to obey the rules? How are they seeing it? Well, at the start of the uh, the start of all, there was really large levels of uh, large levels of support. Uh, the kind of levels of support that governments really don't get for policies very much at all. Over eight out of ten people supporting the uh, supporting the policy specifically, uh, and at the same time, um, a majority, vast majority of people believing that, generally speaking, the government was doing the right thing when it came to the pandemic. As things have moved on, uh, there has been a again a, a closing of the uh, of the gap and, a, and perhaps a more realistic view uh, as politics comes into play and reality uh, reality bites. What we've seen is that people are still broadly uh, broadly supportive of the government, but not in anything like the kind of numbers that they were previously. But we're also seeing that when it comes to specific policies, uh, people are in favour of, um, of the new rules that, uh, that came in this week, or at least the new rules that were announced this week that will come in next week. But at the same time, a sort of, a sort of overarching scepticism that we may be moving too quickly. And if you ask people what they're more concerned about, Entering, uh, sorry, exiting the rules too quickly or exiting the rules too slowly, by a margin of three to one, they say too quickly. So that remains a uh, remains a concern. And also, when you look at the underlying data for this, uh, and you ask people, okay, well, what's the greater risk to uh, to Britain? Is it lives being lost as a result of uh, of the health problems around the COVID pandemic, or is it? lives being lost as a result of the economic problems caused by, uh, caused by the pandemic. Overwhelmingly, people still say it's the health problems. And so I think that we're still, as a nation, thinking about things in terms of the, in terms of the immediate, in terms of the short term, rather than considering the long-term implications, whatever they may be. And what that says to pollster is that there's a great deal of potential for the results and all the data to change as the situation on the ground develops. Okay, and what about specific situations? I'm thinking about the Robert Jenrick uh, saga that is playing out, and there are some comparisons being made to Dominic Cummings. Uh, Is this having any level of cut through yet? Is this something that people outside the Westminster bubble are at all engaging with? Uh, I imagine the Roger Jerick thing probably has not had much cut through. Uh, I doubt many people knew who he was uh, before uh, the 
and the news was announced, and I doubt many people know who he is after the news has been announced. Dominic Cummings was, and, uh, and the incident at, at Barnard Castle, that was a different case, and that clearly did have, uh, did have cut through, but perhaps not surprisingly, given that there really wasn't any other news around at the time. And so that, was, uh, that attracted a lot of attention, and clearly... Um, and clearly people were uh, were exercised about that in a way they haven't been about other things. But at the same time, yes, that, clo- that uh, corresponded with the closing of the gap between Labour and Conservatives. But as I say, we were expecting that to happen anyway. Uh, what you're always interested in looking at in, uh, from a polling point of view is the long-term trends rather than just the short-term fluctuations. And there's still an ongoing debate about whether the... Uh, the Dominic Cummings incident was a talking point or an actual turning point. My suspicion is it was probably more of a talking point, but it could come back to uh, uh, bite them where it hurts later down the uh, down the electoral cycle. But certainly four or five years out from an election, they're not going to be too worried about that at the moment. But it could lead to a uh, to a broad narrative developing at, about the Conservatives not being any different from previous administrations and not being trustworthy. And events such as the Jerick incident just add to that. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.